I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Street Fighter. After seven months of fighting, the civil war in Chateloup may have reached the turning point. The capital has just fallen. In December 1994, the forces of freedom will face a power-mad dictator in a struggle for the fate of the world. I don't think so. You have to do better than that. Okay. Yes! Now, who wants to go home and who wants to go with me? This is a commissioned episode for Adam R. or Grand Funk Master Chief or Grand Ricky. Returning to the show, we have veteran fight fighters who got us through Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, and Food Fight. Player one, Maya Suris. USA! Of course. Perfect. <laughs> and player two is Jason Chewy Slate. USA! And with me, as always, is my wife, Sharon. England! Hello! This, like the Super Mario Brothers movie, which we covered last year as well, was one of the opening salvo of cinema based on video games. Much like Super Mario Brothers, it was made with a contemptuous unfamiliarity with the children's toy of a source material. They have in common that the writers didn't want to deliver the goofy shit that gaming kids enjoyed on screens. They instead made up brand new goofy shit that nobody asked for or wanted, and at the time few enjoyed. And like Super Mario Brothers, the Street Fighter movie gained cult status over the years and is heartily beloved by plenty of folks. For perspective, when I announced all of the uh, uh, commissions one by one for this season, Street Fighter, everyone just sort of sat up and went, Oh my god, you're doing Street Fighter. I'm like, why are you excited about this? But I can understand. It has a reputation for being a really good, bad movie. Though I wouldn't go as far as saying it was a nanar, along the lines of Troll 2, The Room, or Birdemic. There's too much talent in here. It's just being wasted. At my most charitable, I would put this in the same league as the 1966 Adam West Batman The Movie, a camp farce that you're absolutely not supposed to take seriously, and that is only interested in mucking around. At my lesser charitable, I'd say it's very similar to Casino Royale. No, not that one. The other one. The one with David Niven. The one with uh, Orson Welles and Woody Allen. The one that's really difficult to watch. But it doesn't even have a, a cat catastrophic, like, th this happened on set. Uh, and like, the same as with Super Mario Brothers, like, we focused there on the production because it was actually more interesting than the film, but honestly, from the sounds of it, they actually, apart from a little bit of a sticking point with the UN, they had a pretty easy enough time of it, aside from some real-life tragedy. And a sticking point that I keep catching on that was voiced in the extras is the assertion that we weren't supposed to build up our hopes and expect to go in and see something resembling a street, the Street Fighter 2 games that dominated the arcades and home consoles in the early 90s. 
where we told, I was told, if you have no expectations, you'll have a great time. And yet, this was a hot property that was sold to kids. We were there because it was Street Fighter. So telling us that it's our fault that the film was a disappointment, when if it had been called Colonel Billy and the World Bunch, nobody would have gone to see it. Something I always come back to when it comes to adaptation is not to get too hung up on the one-to-one transfer. That would be absurd. If this was exactly like the game, then it would have just been 11 fights in a row, culminating in M. Bison, with a few words exchanged between bust-ups along the lines of seeing you in action is a joke, and you must defeat Sheng Long to stand a chance. That would have been pretty dull, and would have lasted about 38 minutes, though it would have been better than this film, and it couldn't be sold for cinema viewing. No, the ideal I adhere to is that you must remodel the concept that you have for the new medium it is being converted to. But that being the case, everything you alter and remove must have something compelling, memorable, or worth engaging with in its place. This is how Lord of the Rings lost about 28 hours of screen time and it gained a great deal of interpersonal drama. It also helps if you don't hate the source material. There are very few films that can actually do that and do that well. Uh, Starship Troopers is a good, uh, a good example of... Uh, Paul Verhoeven took something that was just a fascist pamphlet and he made it a satirical fascist pamphlet. Stanley Kubrick really like did not like The Shining and he made his version of The Shining. But, Which a lot of people prefer. And both of them absolutely had something of high quality to put in place. And the rule of thumb with these early video game adaptations was the double-hander of I don't play these, but my kids do. I heard that so often in the uh, in the extras of all of these movies. And here you go, kids. Some colourful distractions with names you're familiar with. Hang on, why are we getting all these bad reviews? Because they'd made something bad. And like Stephen E. D'Souza was resentful of the fact that he only got one good review. And it's like, if you make something bad, you're going to make bad reviews. Absolutely. And he's like, well, you just don't get it. You don't get that it's supposed to be funny. You call this laughable, but I want you to laugh. Therein lies a tale. Also, there's an irony in the fact that uh, once upon a time it was, I don't play these, but my kids do. I have a sneaky suspicion that there was at least an element in the new Mortal Kombat of, I didn't play this, but my dad did. Ah! So this ain't your daddy's Mortal Kombat. (laughs) There's always a push-pull for me when watching Street Fighter the movie, which I have done half a dozen times over the last 30 years. I was there in the cinema to see this thing. I was the target audience. I was 14. To begin with, when I watch it, I'm faintly amused. Then I laugh, and then I kind of enjoy myself. And by Act 3, I'm just bored and hoping that it will end soon. It really kind of falls apart by Act 3. And so in order to maintain momentum, to not become tired and bored ourselves, especially Maya, who has had apparently something that... that, that was it was it a fratter day you called it where you just work it's a all, fratter day. Yeah, yeah. all night Friday and you you go home when it's Into, dawn on Saturday. Yes. Exactly. They literally film until there is light in the sky and they can't get away with okay. calling it a night shoot anymore. Sweet Christmas. How many actual hours of <laughs> of sleep did you get? Okay, we're going to go ahead and imagine that it's in the single digits and and the low single digits at that. So uh, in order to maintain momentum and not become tired, bored and exhausted and unconscious ourselves, I have prepared 12 sections of the films all based on the best dozen quotes. 
The film was directed by Stephen E. D'Souza, who adapted the screenplay for The Running Man from the Stephen King novel. He co-wrote Commando with Jeff Loeb and Matthew Wiseman. He co-wrote Die Hard with Jeb Stewart. He co-wrote Die Hard 2 with Doug Richardson. He co-wrote 48 Hours with Walter Hill, Larry Gross and Roger Spotswood. He co-wrote Hudson Hawk with Daniel Waters. He co-wrote The Flintstones movie with Tom S. Parker and Jen Genowine. He co-wrote the Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd film with William Wisher. He co-wrote Lara Croft Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life with James V. Hart. So this was his bread and butter. He co-wrote movies in the 80s and 90s. He also did a lot of TV episodes for, among others, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, V, and Knight Rider. And in terms of screenplays that he wrote from scratch with no adaptation and no co-writers... I suppose it is sort of an adaptation for this one. Beverly Hills Cop 3, which was a sequel. Knockoff, which was a rubbish Van Damme film. So after this, Van Damme went, oh yes, definitely get Stephen E. D'Souza to write that. And Street Fighter. This was the only theatrically released film that Stephen E. D'Souza directed. The prevailing wisdom from producers at the time was that there was no money to be made from video game movies because it was early days. The disastrously structured, atonal mess that was Super Mario Brothers had cost $48 million to make, and it made $38 million back, and that was in 1993. This was 1994, and nothing else had happened in the weeks since that film to suggest that there was any other way of making movies, specifically of making them successful, out of video games. But Double Dragon was under construction for a November 94 release, and Mortal Kombat was going into production for the summer of 1995. And the way Hollywood works, a single bad film counts for the entire concept, but if someone else is doing something that could make them rich, then it's definitely a good idea to do that thing that didn't work before again. And so, without liking or understanding the property, Stephen managed to pull off meetings with Capcom and get them to place their faith in him. Within minutes, a screenplay was written, and while it's supposed to be a comedy of sorts, it veers back and forth between hilariously cheesy lines played straight and intentional jokes that fall flat. If you listen to D'Souza's mid-90s Laserdisc commentary, which was included on my 88 Films Edition Blu-ray that I bought specifically for this episode, you'll hear him say things like, uh, Bison has a hidden fortress, and I don't need to tell you what classic film that's based on. Is it Akira Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress? He also said, oh, uh, Dalsim gets the mutation goop poured on his head, uh, which uh, uh, that uh, pays off. That's going to pay off in the next movie. Uh, no, it pays off in this movie. Is that how he became bald in between two scenes? It is how he became bald. Can he breathe fire now? We're working on that. And now you may I be asking... Even, I didn't even <coughs> notice that he went bald. He lost all his scenes. hair. It was like a X-Men Apocalypse. Yeah, Only that, that had a very key that. scene where Apocalypse <laughs> pulled out every single hair on Professor X's head. And also he said, now you may be asking, how can there be a Street Fighter 2 game and the movie is called Street Fighter? Well, there was a game called Street Fighter produced by Capcom and then they made the very successful Street Fighter 2, which this movie is based on. And now I hear that they're making a Street Fighter 3, which is based on this movie. And I just, I sat there with my head in my hands through this rambling Bunkum. <laughs> it was the mid-90s. Street Fighter 3 was not the same thing as Street Fighter the movie, the game which was farmed out by Capcom to incredible technologies. And it was pretty much their attempt at doing Mortal Kombat. They finally had a way of getting all of these actors in their costumes to assume all these poses. And then they photographed them in a studio and 
turned that into a, a Mortal Kombat 1 feeling game. It had nowhere near the style or playability or character and charisma of the original Street Fighter 2 and its many, many iterations. I came out the other side with a clearer idea of what went wrong here. I have assembled the 12 best and most memorably delivered lines as a framework for our discussion and a way of focusing on the 16 fighters minus Fei Long, anyone notice he wasn't there? From Super Street Fighter 2 that this movie manages to cram into itself. So we will start with, I know that you like to look at yourself on television, so look at this! That was uh, Colonel Guile, William F. Guile, played by Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, mouthing off at Dictator M. Bison on TV. And uh, it, it works, because uh, Raul Julia's watching on the, on the telly, and he goes, ah, ah! He just, like, flexed his muscle at me! He, he gets enraged. <clears throat> so the movie, rather than being a fighting tournament, is kind of G.I. Joe? There is yeah. an alarming yeah. amount of fixation on the armies that sit behind the individuals. Yes. For, for Street Fighter, mm. which is totally not about that. It's much more international conflict uh, with, with multiple armies as opposed to uh, people fighting yeah. because there's it, a tournament on. It almost feels like somebody took that thing that gets trotted out every now and again of wouldn't war be better if we could just take like the presidents of both countries and make them fight in a ring no it wouldn't it would look like this and here's Charlie Blanca for Brazil (laughs) and he's going to fight Chun Li for all of China you know it's it's funny that you mentioned starship troopers before I thought about that a lot when I was re-watching this last night like and Full disclosure, I have not seen this movie in a very, very long time. So there were just huge chunks that I completely forgot about. I did not, for example, remember all of like the American military exceptionalism that's in this movie. I just kind of remember all the all the fighting and, you know, Raul Julia as M. Bison just chewing on the scenery, which he does fantastically. Oh, yeah. Like those are the Best things that thing I in remember. This by far. But my God, the amount of like flag waving, rah rah American military militarism. Which is so weird I because they're totally they're forgot playing about. the UN. That's mm-hmm. not America. They're, they're meant to be very specifically uh, not the American military. Mm-hmm. The AN. The AN. They asked the UN for the permission, AN. and the UN got their lawyers in touch and said, read, we read the script, no. Absolutely and not. in Stephen E. D'Souza's exact words, we had to change the U to an A, but we saved money by keeping the N. <laughs> okay. Is that, is, that, is that an actual quote from him? Yep. Listen okay. to the commentary, if, if you dare. All right. If he was trying to be funny about that, then 
bravo, that's a pretty good joke. But if he was being serious about it, like, oh, God, that just makes my eyes roll to the back of my mm. head. The logo on their flag is pretty much the UN. I mean, basically, the UN, if they'd wanted to, could have uh, sued the shit out of this movie production. Mm. I believe they dialed the blue down a little bit. Like, it's a slightly mm. paler blue. Oh, it's a slightly that's paler blue. That's almost the only difference. You're not going to notice that when yeah. you watch it on shitty uh, cinema screens in the 1990s and then even shittier TV screens. No. Yeah, definitely not. And the thing that makes it a little bit confusing is that it's not clear if Street Fighter is trying to do kind of a, a satire or parody of American exceptionalism, especially yeah, like a team America, especially military exceptionalism. Yeah, something like Team America or like Starship Troopers. Yeah. It's not clear if it's actually trying to do that or if it is playing it straight and just thinking, well, if we throw in some funny one-liners, then it's a comedy. Mm. Unclear. It's one of those cases where if the response is, this is laughable, it's supposed to be laughable, and where if your response is, this isn't funny, or no, we wanted to take Street Fighter seriously. Like, imagine if it was in the real world, you know, where no one can throw a fireball. Yay? That's exactly what everyone asked for? Like I said, the, the one-liners fall a lot flatter than the ones that are delivered entirely straight. Absolutely. And I would say if that is what they're trying to do, the game character of Guile represents that so much better yeah. than anything that they have in here. Just have Guile be super rah-rah American and have him be a bit tiresome. Yeah, I mean, I think they said at one point <laughs> the the fact that it was Jean-Claude Van Damme and that was, I think the producers wanted him because yeah. he was popular at the time. <laughs> Yeah, also, noted he's your Colossus. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Well, exactly, but they were they were kind of trying to figure out, well, how do we get this guy who's very obviously Belgian and make him <laughs> American? Oh, I know, he comes from New Orleans. You've got an Australian playing a British woman here. You clearly don't care about pinning nationalities where they need to be. They were talking about uh, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Harrison Ford. Who the fuck did they think Harrison Ford was going to play in this movie? And as Blanca, Harrison Ford. I we, we discussed this and I said no. Oh, there's no way he was putting on that green body paint. No <laughs> way in hell. Nah. I mean, like he, he couldn't... like. He's not, a, he's not a fighter. No. And again, you guys think you've got Harrison Ford money? That's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. How adorable. I can totally see him saying to the director, you know, when the line was like, friend? If he was Blanca, then he'd be, you can write this shit, Stephen. But you can't but, say but it. I'm not going to say it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to write a number on this piece of paper, and then I'm going to leave. I mean, he'd have been great as a grumpy old M. Bison who's like, ah, no one's letting me do what I need to do. That's pretty much the only character that would make sense for yeah. him, honestly. Um, okay, so... Later in the movie, when the, the UN, I'm sorry, no, the AN steps in and is like, no, don't go start a war, Guile goes... Ah, fuck it! I'm gonna start a war. <laughs> yeah, and I'm gonna get in my stealth boat. Thing. And I'm going. I was watching this with a friend of mine who I don't know if she had ever seen it before. She kept dozing off. And yeah, she was like, "Wait, is he just?" I don't believe is he just that starting was, a war. <laughs> I don't believe Simon Callow represents the AN there. I think he does. All oh, right, yeah. so he's the uh, yeah, the, he's, the he's pencil coming, pusher like from Upper Office. Exactly, he's coming to tell mm -hmm. them that the, the guys down at headquarters said, no, you can't do this. Right. Yeah, the war is cancelled, guys. Everybody go home. And to Guile, apparently, this is a 
horrible show of weakness and we can't do that and we can't back down. So yeah. he ah, riles up his troops I've, and yeah. I think I've just twigged where the American exceptionalism comes in because that mm -hmm. could read like a dig at the, the UN don't actually do anything. They show up and then when oh, things totally. start to get tight, they call the Americans into carpet bomb. I think the uh, the guys in Britain who uh, uh, voted leave really need to see this because it's an example of the muscles from Brussels actually having forward momentum and not doing what he's told, as opposed to telling us to do what we're told. Uh, if the EU had Jean-Claude Van Damme as their mascot, they'd do so much better. <laughs> yeah, they would. He's, I mean, he's still incredibly popular and... I don't know. He just has been aging like a fine wine. Mm. He's a funny guy. When, when you he let is. him be himself, he is a funny Very. guy. Notably, this is Van Damme's, uh, the zenith of his career. He had done a bunch of kickboxing mm. type movies in here and cyborg-y type uh, sci-fi movies in the 80s. And in there was a three-year stretch when he did Universal Soldier in 1992. Uh, he did... Hard Target in 1993, and he did Time Cop in 1994 with Street Fighter kind of at the end of this. Mm. I was going to uh, say, you wow. say this with the Zenith. This was immediately after the Zenith. <laughs> this was him plummeting off the cliff. His career never recovered after this. Like, he was a household name for a short while. Like, he'd actually kind of gotten up to not quite Schwarzenegger proportions. He wasn't going to open the biggest movies ever, but he was definitely way above, say, a Seagal. My sister was a huge mm. fan. Yeah. And it looked like he might go somewhere, but we were just on the cusp of film action films being headed up by people who could actually act and really act. And uh, yeah, after do covering the Matrix for so many weeks, just the whole idea of you know we get in these fantastic actors and we teach them really great martial arts like that are very visually appealing. Under the tutelage of Yen Wu Ping, maybe the greatest cinematic fight choreographer who ever lived. Versus this, where we get in pe actors who can't act and teach them martial arts that they can't do well, and Stephen E. D'Souza can't film well, and we mm. get in martial artists who definitely can't act, but are given no space and no priority to perform actually impressive martial arts. It, it almost seems like the, the, the name actors that they've got in is purely for the basis of the recognition that they bring. Mm. You, oh, yeah. If you hired Kylie Minogue in the 90s, it was for name recognition. But she does mm. nothing. She's been in like oh. two films, though. No. This and The Delinquents. And she got them both on the basis of name recognition. Yeah. Well, you're a British lady. I'm Australian. Well, you're a British lady. The same thing. It's literally the other side of the world. It's as far away from England as you could possibly get. I love your British accent. Okay, fine. I'll be Cammy. It's it's totally the same thing. Look, you guys being British, you're biased to think that it's not. Oh, I'm a British person. I am. God save the Queen. Apples and pears and throw another shrimp on the barbie. Muscle up for some fight pudding. <laughs> <laughs> You just, you just can't tell the difference unless you're really knowledgeable. Side note, I like Kylie Minogue. I used to bop along to the locomotion. She's a really nice person. Like she, she's, she's rubbish in this film, but she sings really well. Watch the music video for Come Into My World, directed by Michelle Gondry, uh, the director of The Science of Sleep. It's fucking fascinating. Kylie walks through the street singing the first chorus, and she sort of sees various people going about their day, cleaning windows, shopping, kicking footballs, and sort of walks around and the camera keeps tracking with her and she's, like, she's walking under ladders and then avoiding paint. And then another Kylie comes out at the end 
who looks absolutely identical, and they walk round together, singing the second verse, looping back around. And every person they meet also has a double. And then it happens a third time, and then a four. You got four Kylies walking through, singing "Come Into My World." It's fucking seamless. It is art. It's amazing. It is not. Michelle Gondry is really good at that kind of stuff, doing those kind of practical effects. Um, And speaking of music. Graham Ravel did the score for this one, and like the tone of the movie, it veers back and forth between seeming a little bit too self-serious and being playful and daft without ever really being fantastic. He didn't in any way want to replicate any of the game's music, and I started humming different tracks for Sharon from different areas, and I realized, oh my god, you just orchestrate these your film immediately feels more like Street Fighter. I'm going to fill this mm. episode with orchestral Street Fighter music that will make you go, oh, I know that one. Like, how could you not have the Guile theme in this? It's, <laughs> it it works with, with anything, even the Street Fighter movie. Could have had. says on this national broadcast, Charlie, hang on, buddy, we're coming. And at this point, M. Bison's busy snapping men in half like twigs, and then he turns around and goes, Carlos, otherwise known as Charlie, you're coming with me, you're going to be my monster. <laughs> and it's like, oh, well done, Guile, you just shot your mate in. Okay, so the next uh, quote Carl is... Guile really is just an idiot throughout this he's... entire movie. Yeah, he's terrible at everything. That he's he a total does. numpty. Popular guy, greatest cage fighter since Iron Fist. Oh yeah, what happened to him? He retired and became me. <sighs> That's Sagat meeting Ryu and Ken, who are gun runners somehow. Now, anyone yeah, who knows they're uh, they're gun like, runners because they're, they're the good guys. Criminals. They're good guy. But like, even Ken they're even says good. later on, "We're good guys, right?" And Ryu says. I'm not sure I feel particularly good right now. And th- there is kind of a morality play going on with them. Like Sagat says at one point, uh, he retired and became me, and he sort of he gives them lots of gold and, and hookers and blackjack. And uh, Ken is kind of tempted by this lifestyle. At the end, he throws it back in Sagat's face and says, I'm one of the good guys. The good guys wear blue, the bad guys wear, wear red in this. It is that level of simple. And in mm-hmm. Ryu and Ken's case, they wear little patches that they can handily tear off when they decide yeah. to reject their bad guy. Or course. just take off the whole shirt. Or just, or just take lose off the, the shirt. Yeah. Your, yeah. Your <laughs> um, the every single character in this film slowly puts on their costume from the game. 
Like it's uh, by the end, everyone's in costume. As a, or they get put in it off camera. Yeah, or they get put in it off camera, like Doug Dahl seem. Yeah. Uh, and, and they look terrible. Like they, they, they look less accurate than Mortal Kombat Annihilation. And that's saying something. But not just that they look, they look less accurate. They don't even really look like clothes. There's an amusing Can bit I, where uh... Zangief um, puts Ryu and Ken in a red and white gi, and he's like, now you look like bison troopers. And then we zoom out, and there's a load of dudes in red and white gis fighting, and I'm like, that's a pretty good visual <laughs> gag. Like, it makes them not special at all. Which is appropriate, since Ryu and Ken blend into the background of this movie because they're not important whatsoever. The two focal heroes of the series <laughs> who are in every single fucking game are playing fifth and sixth fiddle. Uh, I have a real problem. So in the 90s, in America, USA, Americans are stupid, kids are stupid, so American kids are doubly stupid, right? Yep. No one knew how to pronounce Ryu. Yep. It was Ryu. Yeah. Because we're, like I said, dumb American kids. The problem is this movie was made by Theoretical adults? Who and had the only, ear of Capcom. Only two characters say Ryu's name properly. Yeah. And one of them is not Ken. Ken actually says Ryu to his face, Ugh. and Ryu does not punch him in the head. Yeah. The, uh, the actor... That's pretty uh, bad. Byron Mann. The actor who plays Ryu did mention that halfway through filming, he said, um, actually it's Ryu, because someone had, had called him Ryu. And then mm. D'Souza was like, What? And he said, it's, it's Ryu, it's pronounced Ryu. He so checked with a Japanese friend. They, uh, they, they, they all went to one side, had a conversation, and said, we've got to do this and say this right. So they decided, they elected, I believe it was probably one of those squabble, 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 one of doing it my way. They decided to get it wrong every time and call him Ryu every time. But clearly, a few of the Ryus got through. Yeah, and it was, it was two characters. Do you know which two got it right? <sighs> E. Honda and Zangief. No, it was Jean-Claude Van Damme who can barely speak English. <laughs> and I think he was trying to say Ryu and messed it up. So that's mm -hmm. good. And the other <laughs> one is, of course, the great Roll Julia, who yeah. said it right, I think, twice. Probably just because he's such... He's just such a professional that he could not pronounce it yeah. incorrectly every time someone said his name i would wince and amanda was like what i'm like that's not how you say that these people should know yeah. better they're professionals yeah like i said they There's... had to agree to get it wrong perfectly each time and and that was their product that's a that's a really good macrocosm for everything in this movie let's get it wrong every time we mm. can't get it right every time so let's get it wrong every time okay i'll stop you there you could you say at least you're, you're consistent getting it wrong and so you're determined to get it wrong every time how can you not choose to get it right every time i could say at least you're consistent but that's a that's a kind of a false uh, at least you're i'd rather you were inconsistent and got it right a few more times like ralph bakshi's lord of the rings saruman is occasionally called araman and araman the white wears red but sometimes he's called saruman just yeah. let let some quality slip through this sieve of garbage that's that like you've got taking that stopped clock that's right twice a day and setting it five minutes late just before it's about to be right <laughs> <laughs> At least like, you're consistently wrong every time. Okay. You uh, think they could have uh, used some ADR or something? Because I swear, the only named character who's not from Street Fighter 2 is Captain Sawada. 
And I swear, it sounded like every one of his lines was uh, ADR'd in later. Do you know what the story behind yeah, Captain I, Sawada was? I do not. Okay. Captain Sawada was played by Kenya Sawada. He was put forward by Capcom as he had acted in Japanese commercials as Ryu. English was clearly not his language. It'd be like insisting <coughs> that, is it Ronometra play uh, Lara Croft? Lara Croft as Tomb Raider, Which yeah. a lot of people did, wasn't gonna happen. Yeah, there were a bunch of models in the 90s prior to Angelina Jolie taking the cinematic role who, who could have played Lara Croft. It's not worthy that Ronometra did actually go on to have a film career. She was pretty good in Doomsday. But um, Capcom put this guy forwards and there was a sticking point and this guy from Japan was told, no, you can't be Ryu. But we do have this Hong Kong actor who can play Ryu. And I think it's probably going to come down to the fact that he English was not his first language and he couldn't talk. But it's not like Jean-Claude Van Damme was delivering his lines with the received pronunciation of Benedict Cumberbatch. So, yeah, um, Captain Sawada was kind of giving, given a consolation role. So it's weird, it almost feels like uh, the guy playing Ryu was maybe brought in to play Fei Long, and then they switched him over because he could at least, like, he, he actually does have, like, he's a silver fox now. He's got some charisma. And, uh, you know, he kind of carries his scenes in a very subdued, quiet way. However, giving Damien Chapa, the guy who plays Ken, the benefit of the doubt, as an actor, he is not given any opportunity to register as his very broad character. If you've seen the anime version of the Street Fighter 2 movie, Ken comes off pretty much exactly like you'd imagine in the games there. He's like, hey Ryu, how's it going man? Wooga wooga. And he's just kind of a bonehead <laughs> ninja turtle. But that's Ken. The way to play him in the 90s is, well, Keanu Reeves. Good. That's enough for now. You both deserve a rest. Ryu, Ken, you boys go fetch some water from the valley before breakfast, hey? Yes, Sensei. Hey, girlfriend, why don't you throw more punches? Might break a nail, huh? Wooga, wooga, wooga. What are you accusing me of, sloughing off? Just kidding. Gosh, you're so sensitive. Hey, not bad if you're planning to fight old ladies. We won't be training forever, you know. The time will come when our lives will depend on this. Depend on this. But back away from that cartoon with its terrible dub to the realistic, real, Hadouken-free world of Stephen E. D'Souza's Street Fighter. They're dealing guns, they hit the guns, they're about to be executed by firing squad with their own guns. The guns turn out to be Nerf guns and they had to close the guns or something. This is the reverse of Mortal Kombat. They spent their tennis ball money on Christopher Lambert. Street Fighters spent their Harrison Ford money on tennis balls. Well, on yeah. tennis balls. <laughs> but, like, think about Mortal Kombat and how that film starts screaming its name at you and how the music just goes... Dun, 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 dun. Just that thundering moment... Mortal Kombat, as a movie, has got momentum out the yin-yang. 
This and does not have that momentum. It's fast. Like, Mortal Kombat at least had the wherewithal to go, you know what, in and out in 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah. If you don't like it, you are going to be out the, the other side before you've even noticed, so don't worry. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of a shame because I think there are some things about Street Fighter that do the video game fighting movie better than Mortal Kombat, but Mortal Kombat is just so much more enjoyable it's faster it's got more it's got more of a life to it if that makes sense like it just feels like it has more energy the choreography in mortal kombat is fairly dynamic if 90s which entails showing off a bit more than actually hitting each other but for street fighter the horrible choreography was overseen by benny the jet Urquides who uh, you might remember as Felix Lapoubelle from Gross Point Blank, if you've seen that fantastic oh fucking movie. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Um, and he's, wow. a re- like, he's a really good kickboxer. He has that fight with Martin Blank. He's in this movie as one of Sagat's henchmen. It's blink and you'll miss it. And then when they're in prison, blink and you'll miss it again. But he's there. He's got this creepy little mm. face. And he can definitely fight. And I can see his moves in some of the characters. But it feels like they trained for maybe a day, as opposed to The Matrix, where it's training, 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 like really getting to the point where they can really fight. Or at least make it look like they can fight that well. And Van Damme is legit. Like, he's a legitimately good fighter. I don't know if they were banking on... Van Damme just kind of carrying most of the action scenes and a lot of the fight scenes. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure. But he barely but, gets to actually fight. He does a lot of know, acting, but also, very little fighting. And also, but it also doesn't help that like in his big fight scenes, they do the, uh, this drives me crazy, where they do the thing where they don't actually show the fight. They cut into like close-ups and yeah. medium shots where you can't see anything. There's a couple of nice like wider shots where you can actually see Van Damme throw his kicks. They look really, really good. And it's a shame that they didn't do that for all of the fight scenes hmm. because then it would have actually had some, like you were saying, it would have had some momentum behind it. It would have actually been visually interesting, but instead it's just jump cuts to close-ups hmm. and it looks terrible. That one, I think, is down to D'Souza, who clearly doesn't like video games, but also doesn't like mm. martial arts movies. He has no idea how to direct or frame the fights. Some some directors just do not, are, are just not in tune with how to shoot fights. You say some directors, he's a writer. This was his one time actually directing a film. Mm. So this was not his job. And although D'Souza wrote this script himself, clearly, if you look at many of those movies I mentioned earlier, he has talent just not when he's flying solo. Mm. But Maya, I think, is absolutely right about the the directing and the the planning of said scenes. I mean, like the fact that Benny the Jet was involved in terms of potentially not even necessarily training people, but showing them how to do something and then have them do it. I'm willing to bet that's one Mm -hmm. of the reasons why he has to be in the scenes, because they needed him there to go, right, show them how to do this. Well, he's only in two scenes. Well, yeah, but there there is a massive difference. He should have been recurring henchman number three. He could just have played Vega. (laughs) He's got a bit of a 
of a dill thing going on there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there's there's a big difference between being able to fight and being able to choreograph a fight. Yeah, that's yeah, true. And making actually. it uh, yes, and and real fights often not all the time, but often do not translate well to film. So there is a very specific technique to film fight directing and choreographing specifically for camera. Yeah. It's a very specific skill. Some people know how to do it, some don't. Some directors are excellent at it. Some give the camera to their fight choreographer or their second unit director who might be a stunt coordinator and mm. say, you shoot it because you know what's actually going to look good. And yeah. that those are probably the best case scenario of, of things like that, where director just said, I want you to shoot all the action because you know how to make it look good and I trust you and just take the camera and go. The fights in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie were so much better than in this. And the drama yeah, in because that because you can they took it seriously. see what the hell they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also a difference between planning one fight that looks really brutal, which is what Benny the Jet did for Gross Point Blank, and planning several mm. fights for a movie where you want all these fights to look a mm. little bit different. Ryu stumbles oh, into a man. ring and ends up almost having a fight with Vega. Then it's like, oh my God, an actual fight's gonna break out in the Street Fighter movie. And then Guile bursts through the wall in an armored car like G.I. Joe, gets out, Leans on the side and goes, You're all under arrest. D'Souza said, and that's uh, that's a reference to Cary Grant, where he turns up in uh, such and such a movie. He says, You're all under arrest. I'm like, Yep, that is exactly what Street Fighter is. It is a, it is a Cary Grant movie masquerading as mm. a Street Fighter movie. I can't believe I didn't see that. <laughs> Remember that it's famous so quote, You're all now. under arrest? In the hindsight. They just reuse a bunch of the shots over and over again. They recycle shots like crazy. It's mm. so obvious and it drove me nuts. Oh yeah, when when Van Damme does his flash kick, that's literally the same shot twice. They, they didn't even just, film it from oh, two angles. The amount, yeah, the amount of recycling shots, yeah. especially at the end was mind blowing. It's cheap as chips. And uh, yeah, it was Gunga Din that Cary Grant uh, said, you're all under arrest. Gunga Din is the 1939 colonial adventure movie that George Lucas based Temple of Doom on. And then when they get to the hidden temple at the end, D'Souza said, and this is clearly a reference to Gunga Din, because why not? And I'm like, because it was a horrible racist film. That's why not. Um, <laughs> the Vega fight almost looks like it might be quite good, because the guy playing Vega never says a word. Clearly English not his first language either, but he looks the part. He sort of preens. He's got that sort of beautiful sculpted face. And then in the next scene, he's um, basically... And a beautiful sculpted body, I would add. Yeah, I mean, no, yeah. This guy's carved saying, out of wood. That, like, this guy is fucking ripped. Yeah. So Ryu is given a machete, sort of poses with it for a bit, because again, 90s, martial arts equals posing. And it's like, oh, it seems like violence might be imminent here. And then Van Damme comes along and goes, there'll be no fighting in this Street Fighter movie. You're all... On the arrest. And Vega never says anything throughout this movie. He just sort of stands there and looks pretty and intimidating. Um, he's sidekicky. He's very sidekicky. Although, interestingly, D'Souza refers to Ken as Ryu's sidekick. And I'm like, they're not partners, but at least you got it in that order. <laughs> <laughs> you know, True. I never noticed that Vega didn't speak. Yep. 
Never says a word. But I think I think oh. he's uh, the other half of one of the only good fights. It's when Ryu and he are enclosed in all those big red lockers, and it's it's very claustrophobic. And obviously with Vega with those talons, and he's very kicky and very acrobatic. That actually makes for a great fight because you're like he could come from anywhere. There's pillars all over the mm-hmm. place, and Ryu's yeah. very much on the back foot. And then when Sagat comes in, it's it gets really like thunking, pounding, like something's going to happen. It's not well done, but it's probably the best fight in the whole it's film. One, yeah, it's one of the better ones yeah. for sure. Yeah. One thing that amused me about Vega actually, the bit when they're in prison, he has fashioned himself. And I say he fashioned himself because they look very professionally made. <laughs> a, a set of bamboo claws. Now, th- what I would expect to see would be like claws made out of bamboo where the bamboo has been kind of carved to a point. But no, he's got these little metal inserts that he's stuck in the end of the bamboo, which still leaves me baffled as to where he would get those from. And where he hides those from the guards, because that whole apparatus was not small. Fine point, yes. Yes. Mm. Um, where where does... Ve- Answers on a postcard, folks. Where does, where does Vega, Vega hide his, his bamboo claws? claws? <laughs> uh, although, also, if you, you don't want to know. If you listen carefully during the cage fight, the audience are yelling at Vega, no weapons, no weapons, which is exactly what audiences at bloody cage fights shout. They don't want weapons. They want this to be mano a mano. No, skin on skin. No, they say get the sledgehammer. Yeah, sledgehammer and chairs covered in barbed wire. That's what they want. It just, it reminded me of the fight at the beginning of Hot Shots Part Deer. And I was like, one oh. pig snout sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a de- like definitely trying to be funny. For, like, if you watch Hot Shots Part Deer and laugh your ass off and then watch this, it's clear which one was a successful comedy and which one was horrendously mismanaged. And they're actually, honestly, not that different films. They're both going upriver to deal with this dictator who's based on Saddam Hussein. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's, like, that was clearly In one weighing... case, it's literally Saddam Hussein. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. yeah. That was clearly weighing heavily on everyone's mind. And, and Raul Julia plays uh, him somewhere between Hussein and C- Colonel Gaddafi, who was very personable and liked to sort of... Um, treat his the people who were interviewing him like guests rather than being threatening and he had lots of airs and graces and they've gone to great lengths to fill Bisonopolis with loads of the kind of affectations and art and, and self-preening kind of, you know, like, uh, like monuments to his power and Raul Julia was trying to play the man like someone who believes he's right. Mm. That actually, you, mm. you've got a good point there, though. What you, you said there about dictators and sort of them being able to give off this air of being quite personable and being able to get on with people. That was fine in the 90s when they were only on TV for like 20 minutes a day. Yeah. As the internet progressed and there was the potential for them to get caught on camera at any time, it became Mm -hmm. a lot harder to sustain that Also, if you study historically dictators, what they like, how they behave, how they see themselves, what they collect, how they fill up their houses, it's so clear that Donald Trump wanted to be the dictator of America. And for a little while, he got to be. He got to be the fucking banana republic, I've taken this place and now you'll do as I say. I'm the great everything of of American presidents. And uh, yeah, glad glad we're past that bit. 
there were three for test now. audiences for Street. For now. Yeah, for now. Just I'm, I'm, I'm betting on Tucker Carlson for the uh, next uh, the next Republican president. You know the guy who wanted to fuck giant M&Ms? And now they're wearing uh, dowdy shoes he doesn't uh, want to anymore. Mm. Well, you'll just Change have to fuck to the other chocolate, tense, cu- Tucker. And I agree. I feel like he still wants to. Tucker, Tucker, chocolate fucker. Um, <laughs> if I'd known it was going to be that part, kind of party, I'd have stuck my dick in the M&M. <laughs> There were three test audiences for this film. The, the first was kids. They all failed. The, the first was kids, who Stephen E. D'Souza said liked it. He's lying. Um, the, the third was adults over the age of 25 who got that it was a joke and laughed uproariously at the many parodies throughout. I think he's lying about that one too. Yeah. Uh, and mm, the probably. ones in the middle were uh, late stage teenagers over the age of 15, younger than uh, 25. So uh, late teens, 20s. And they hated the movie because they were coming to see a Van Damme film. And Van Damme was very famous for doing bloody martial arts spectaculars. If you oh. saw Hard Target the year before, Oh. Directed by John Woo, which, by the way, I'm going to recommend. Like that is the film to see instead of this because yes. it's hilarious and bloody and action-packed. It's a secret gambit movie, and it's got Wilford Brimley on a horse yeah, riding away from an explosion, an explosion ah! of moonshine. Yes. A plus. <laughs> We're going to cover this movie. Hard target is. Have you said that before? Joey, have you never seen? No, we hate movies. If I have, it blended in in my memory. You never seen? Oh man, you got to come back. You got to. We've got to do hard target together. We're the fight bunch now. We all need to (laughs) reconvene. To you have got to watch. You would love it. I am your uncle Duvet. (laughs) It's absolutely. (laughs) This make Jack Rabbit slap the bear. Okay. It's a blast. It's so much fun. Anyway. Yeah, but if you um, watch that and then you went to see this, you'd be like, oh, God. Yeah. Like, I you wanted would to see. think this was a movie for babies. Yeah. You'd, like, Especially the... at that age. Yeah. Specifically, it is a. It skews very, very young. Teenagers that weren't here because it was a Jean Claude Van Damme movie yeah. were here because it was a Street Fighter movie. Yeah. Re- the guy who played uh, Ryu said, I, had ne- I got the role of Ryu and I'd never played. Uh, Street Fighter before and I'm like okay so the first thing you do is you buy yourself a Super Nintendo and you play the shit out of Ryu's games because don't don't play just don't go to the arcade and expect to get it all from that there's too much noise too much confusion you spend the 200 bucks you get this game everyone's talking about you owe it to yourself as this performance because if you notice not one of the actors playing these characters they never seem to proudly embody the heroes of the game. It's always sheepish. They're embarrassed. This this perfectly explains it. He says, I'd, I'd never played it before, so eventually so my, my nephew convinced me to go to an arcade, and I got pickpocketed that some kids stole my wallet. And then after that, I couldn't go into arcades anymore. And so he'd never even heard of Street Fighter. I'm like, but you walked around in the 90s, in the uh, like at some point, they had fucking Street Fighter in gas stations. You'd have to go around with your fingers in your ears so as not to hear. Ooh, 
have you never been to a Pizza Hut in your life? Good God, man. Yeah, or or did you never take your nephew to Chuck E. Cheese? Yeah. You monster. But not a single person <laughs> came forwards with, and I was a big fan of Street Fighter, and this was like the dream role for me. I got to play Balrog. There's a reason for that, though. If they did approach anybody who was in that position, they'd read the script and go, oh, heavens, oh, heavens no. Yeah. <laughs> this is not Street Fighter. I think it's time we get to the bright, shining pearl at the centre of this soup tureen of crackerjack knickknacks. Ah! The road not taken. But why? Why do they still call me a warlord? And mad? All I want to do is to create... The perfect genetic soldier. Not for power, not for evil, but for good. Carlos Blanca will be the first of many. They shall march out of my laboratory and sweep away every adversary, every creed, every nation, until the very planet is in the loving grip of the Pax. Sonica. And then peace will reign in the world, and all humanity shall bow to me in humble gratitude. That was beautiful. And mad? Not for evil, but for good. What? Good? <laughs> Dude. Please, I wrote enlighten down me. The, the warlord speech was the highlight of the film. He is like, the It is actually really well written and well delivered. It, it Everything about it just said the scene from yeah. the... What is it, Mitchell versus the machine? This, uh, behold, cinema. <laughs> <laughs> like that's what I got from the warlord speech. And amidst all of this crap, the warlord speech was just like, oh, oh, it's beautiful. Now it might not actually be that great, but compared to the rest of the film thus far, I, it's one of the most watchable. Th- like Raul Julia as M. Bison is probably the most like visually interesting character, and also his delivery is the most memorable. If there's a 14-minute video uh, on YouTube of all the Raul Julia stuff from this film oh, in HD, that's going to be way better than watching the film. Yeah. He's, that's he's incredible. He's the only actor that like seemed to realize that he was in a stupid movie <laughs> and decided yes. to enjoy himself. He seems to really get it. It's just the, the amount of... I mean, he legit looks like he's having a blast. Mm. He really he does. does. He does. A, a huge over-the-top, silly villain character. It's yeah. so great. A huge part of it is he feels like Gomez Adams' career alternate. Yeah. His, my <laughs> brother <laughs> runs <laughs> Shadaloo. I seek justice. Did <laughs> I? <laughs> Oh, but that's boy. that's the kind of energy and uh, and charisma that he is bringing to this role, and he is so watchable. 
He really needed uh, an Angelica Houston to play off of. His the best he has is DJ, who's just sort of in the background for most of the film. His lines, he's the the actor's trying not to be a racist stereotype, but at the very end, he lays it on very thick with the oh, uh, I'm a I'm a Rastafarian. Hard. He was it Rastified by two hundred percent. Here's the first time I got like a legitimate like proper laugh though is that when Van Damme playing Guile pretends to be shot and killed. Oh yeah. Okay. Bison sees this and looks like this is adorable. He looks genuinely upset and like heartbroken that his arch nemesis has been killed and he didn't get to do it himself. It just happened off screen. Like, he's so sad about this. And then DJ goes, That's great news, General. Congratulations. On the contrary, I mourn. Okay. I was hoping to face Guile personally on the battlefield. One gentleman warrior to another in respectful combat. Then I would snap his spine. Okay. Like... (laughs) (laughs) That was so funny to me. Like, he's okay. Like, I'm not even going to touch this one. I'm just going to fade back into the background. Honestly, if they wanted this to be a comedy where they would have been better off hiring 12 comedians and just let them fucking riff and ad lib and just keep the best stuff. And because the fighting clearly isn't particularly interesting or paramount to them. So you may as well just make it a comedy. Yeah. And I think the, the actor that plays DJ and, and I would go, as far as to say, like, the actor that plays Zangief as well. Like, mm. they have some pretty good comedic timing. That would be Miguel A. Nunez and Andrew Bernierski as Zangief. He was in Batman Returns as Christopher Walken's son, Chip. Oh, Girl. Zangief is, like, the biggest himbo, and it gives me life. I love him so much. In fact, Zangief and DJ might be my favorite characters in this in this movie just because they have i think they have some of the best comedic timing Mm. and like they're just lovable goofballs and i yeah they play off of off of raw julia so well they're fantastic a road trip with those two maybe even like if raul julia had lived a road trip with those three post shadaloo what do we do now you know, then you've got effectively, oh, brother, where, oh, Street Fighter, where art thou? Yeah. <laughs> General Bison is a bad guy. If you know this, then why do you serve him? Because he paid me African fortune, you moron. You got paid? Yeah, I would love that. Other uh, than Raul Julia, the, the comedy relief is the best bits. Uh, DJ Zangief and even the... Uh, the E Honda Zengi fight. I mm. just love that they threw in Godzilla sound effects. I yeah. almost peed. That's the one moment where Captain Sawada actually seems comfortable because a lady speaks to him in Japanese and he speaks back to her in Japanese. Like they're, they're both in their element at that mm. point. And I then wondered could, couldn't they made a live action Japanese Street Fighter? That would have been good because did anyone get to see the anime Street Fighter? No. I, I have seen it several times. Yeah. Okay. It's good stuff. It is. It's. Way better than this. It's still kind of bobbins because they have to give it an overarching plot. 
And yeah. it's Bison is observing all the fighters around the world with these sort of robots who sidle up to the sidelines of fighting and say, who's fighting? Can I get in on that? And then they film the people doing the fighting. And Bison <laughs> watches the footage and goes, oh, my goodness, he's over 9,000. And they just kind of, like, work out who's the toughest fighter and turn it into mathematics, which is tiresome. But I'd still say the Street Fighter 2 1994 anime is worth watching. Very hard to find on Blu-ray or streaming, but I think we found it on YouTube in the end. It's got the English dub with some mm-hmm. choice music on, on there. But, uh, well, it, yeah, it's, it's it worth watching. It used to be on Prime here in the States. Yeah, it changes around. Oh, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, everyone looks and moves the way that they should. There's a, a great little bit where um, Blanca is being crushed by Zangief in a pit fight and goes, right, and then becomes electrical and electrocutes Zangief, who turns into a skeleton for a, a short while. But as I said earlier of the Stephen E. D'Souza-verse, none of the magic in the games is in this. Because despite Mm-mm. the fact that this is a fantastical comedy... It's also in the real world. So you couldn't throw a Hadouken or a Sonic Boom. That, that, that would be silly. You'd have, to, you'd have to only do it with technology. And I feel like that might have irritated everyone as well. You're doing a Street Fighter movie and Ryu can't do a Hadouken. You've already lost at that point. Okay, so if it's the real world, have them fight like people fight in the real world. You don't want to do that either. Okay, cool. Lowered expectations. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, Street Fighter II, the animated movie, is currently streaming on, in the U.S. anyway, as of this recording, uh, Amazon Prime, the Roku channel, Tubi, which is one of those random free ones, mm. mm-hmm. um, Voodoo Free, IMDb, Something several I've never heard of. <laughs> so, you, so you can find it. It's called Street Fighter Two, and it's it's animated. The animated movie. Yeah. Uh, is the official. There's like, other yeah. other versions as well. There's a Street Fighter Alpha and a Street Fighter V. I just, yeah, none of yeah. them are particularly fantastic. The the final act of the uh, Street Fighter Two anime, Ryu fights now Evil Ken because he's been enslaved by Bison, and it's like, do you know what's way better than he's been enslaved by Bison and is now evil? Two friends fighting for ideological reasons. You, know? you couldn't do that because it would end in a wooga 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 wooga. But uh, yeah, the, it, it, it becomes kind of a slog by the end. But there is one really good tense fight, which again involves Vega. Uh, and that's where Chun-Li has a breast shower. She has to shower those breasts and you've got to see the arse. And uh, then when she gets out of the shower, Vega immediately attacks her from the ceiling. And her first instinct is not to scream, but to yank aside the bedspread, knocking him to the floor. At the same time as he's thrown her off. And then they fight as equals. And it's not just... Like, uh, Jason Voorhees attacks a girl and she runs away and screams. She kicks serious ass in that fight. And it's shot kind of like a horror movie. Like, Vega is really frightening. Gloating and misogynistic. And he beats the crap out of Chun-Li. She ends up in hospital, but she still wins the fight. And does the 100-foot kick into his fucking face. And then kicks him out of the window into the river. No, no, no. She kicks him through the wall. Through the wall, yeah. She kicks him out of the movie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He breaks through the fourth wall, lands on the floor, and you never see him again. And that's a great sequence. And uh, Guile's constant patronizing of Chun-Li throughout is somewhat mitigated, but then she gets benched. And if you can find it, I would recommend the Japanese language version with subs, which will have just a little more dignity and better music. But Chun-Li's also in the best dramatic scene in this, which we'll get to in a bit. So in either film, Vega's in the best fight, 
and Chun-Li is the source of the best drama. Uh, Raul Julia also says to Sagat, every bison buck will be worth five English pounds. That's the exchange rate the Bank of England will set up when I kidnap their queen. And I believe We Hate Movies said, you know what, I want to see that movie instead. (laughs) Bison comes up with this briefcase full of what are essentially worthless pieces of currency. Mickey Mouse all, All displaying... Bison's face that he insists will vastly increase in value with time. Bison is peddling fucking NFTs. (laughs) (laughs) In truth. Shall set set you free. free. And Sagat correctly rejects them and says, bullshit, this is fake. As Jim Stephanie Sterling recently said, and this is absolutely accurate, If NFTs were a great investment, then the tech bros who invested in them already wouldn't be trying to convince us to invest in them. They'd want to keep them for themselves. Like insider trading. It only works, they only get rich, if people who aren't them buy what they've bought for more than they paid. That's how pyramid schemes work. And as Maya points out, Sagat's incisive response to Bison is, These are only going to work if your insane plan pans out, and it won't, because you're insane. West Studi mm-hmm. has way too much dignity for this character. He doesn't get any good dramatic yeah. scenes to have. He's just sort of there in the background, smirking the whole time. He's so much, like, but as is Julia, above this material. This is Sagat's Classy Club. Welcome to the Tiger Uppercut Lounge. We're Sleepy Buddha. Then after the uh, after Van Dam fakes his own death in the street after Ken does a, uh, a, a pretend shooting during the prison break. Side note, by the way, Stephen D. D'Souza correctly pointed out that this movie is multicultural. It's got people from all around the world and only one white guy. At which point, I imagine Ken going, "Oh, I can be as myself." But uh, but yeah, the, that's one of the best things about Street Fighter Two, and it, it kind of carried over to when we talked about Overwatch. If it's a big collection of people from all around the world representing, let's face it, in the early 90s, cultural stereotypes, but at least other cultures rather than just America, you then get a more universal appeal, a a real kind of pan-global feel to it. And it it feels like uh, The Fast and the Furious could head in that direction. You know, the movie is actually more uh, diverse than the game because they changed E. Honda from Japanese to Hawaiian. So he's of Polynesian descent, which just adds one more little tick there. I don't understand why they did that. I guess because the only big dude they could get was Polynesian. They were like, he doesn't look Japanese. Scribble that out. Yeah, Ryu and E. Honda are two very Japanese characters, both from Japan, made by Capcom's Japanese studio. One of the actors they got was from Hong Kong, the other Hawaii, like Yokozuna for the WWF. The Japanese guy is off to the left, cast as nobody, and asked to not say anything. And I absolutely want more Hawaiian representation. In fact, now that I think about it, I have a role in an upcoming New Century audio production. It won't be for a while, but we can get it recorded now. I've written the book. 
for a female character of Hawaiian extraction. She should be in her 20s or 30s and happy to enthusiastically play a scientist. So if you are or know anyone who fits that bill, get in touch. But what they've done here isn't that. Did you notice yeah. that every they time he says or does anything, the soundtrack dude. goes... And plays a little I bit of Hawaiian aloha music. Music sting. I was just going to say, like, they take a giant Ugh. step backwards with their inclusiveness by having Ugh. that freaking music sting every time mm. he's on screen. It drove me nuts. It, like, Chun Li doesn't it. get the same thing. Like, when she starts speaking, it doesn't go. <laughs> Although that would be the equivalent. You're absolutely right. Well, and, and whenever Kylie says it anything, be. it goes. <laughs> Honda and Balrog, the boxer, played by Grand L. Bush from Die Hard. He was Agent Johnson. I was in junior high, dickhead. They're Chun-Li's cameraman and sound guy. She's a reporter, and they have a good enough chemistry together. E. Honda gets strapped to a torture rack and then gets caned. This torture rack was an exact model of the one that that boy who took a trip to Singapore and bought along his spray paint got caned on. Michael Peter Fay is an American who was sentenced to six strokes of the cane in Singapore in 1994 for theft of road signs and vandalizing 18 cars over a 10-day period in September 1993, which caused a temporary strain in relations between Singapore and the United States. Fay and his friends damaged their neighbors' cars at apartment blocks with hot tar, paint remover, and red spray paint, and hatchets, and had eggs pelted at them. The number of cane strokes in Faye's sentence was ultimately reduced from six to four after United States officials requested leniency. He was caned on the 5th of May 1994, and now I realise that's where the giant boot in the Australia episode of The Simpsons comes from. Once there was this kid who took a trip to Singapore and brought along his spray paint and when he finally came back He had cane marks all over his bottom He said that it was from when the warden whacked it so hard And, and Belwog decides they're going to get out of jail and he says, give me a hand At which point E. Honda says, I've only been in jail for two hours, maybe next month Honda, give me a hand. We've only been in jail two hours. Maybe next month. I never caught that when I was younger. <laughs> mm. And That's that the actually idea. made me you almost spit out the drink I was taking. Hmm. But as a kid, I didn't really pick up on I it. I didn't get or, it, yeah. Or, or, or you yeah. know, yeah. change the channel is a joke that everyone can enjoy. That's for the kids. Jerk me off in jail. <laughs> It's a little bit of a different kind of That's show. That's for the adults. Ooh, a little something for the dads. Yeah, you know, when all those dads are sitting there like, God damn, I'm taking my kid to see this Street Fighter movie. What's that jerking off? <laughs> He's going to jerk him off in jail. A fat one's going to jerk him off in jail. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my god, Dad! So, Dad, why did you laugh so much at that jail joke? 
I love it. Man, now I'm just picturing your dad taking you to see this movie, Steve. That's what happened. This is what happened. And this is around the time that Van Damme is giving a rousing uh, United Nations speech to the AN. And he oh, sa- boy. <laughs> At this point, Stephen E. D'Souza t- says that he had dinner with um, Van Damme and his parents. And his parents told him about uh, how they were uh, menaced by Hitler. And so Van- uh, Jean-Claude got fired up and wanted to make an anti-Hitler speech. And that's what he brought to the, uh, the stage with this particular speech, where he says... Troopers, I just received new orders. Our superiors say the war is cancelled. We can all go home. Bison is getting paid off for his crimes. And our friends who have died here will have died for nothing. But we can all go home. Meanwhile, ideals like peace, freedom, and justice, they get packed up, but we can all go home. Well, I'm not going home. I'm going to get on my boat, and I'm going upriver, and I'm going to kick that son of a bitch bison's ass so hard that the next bison wannabe is going to feel it. Now, who wants to go home? And who wants to go with me? You know, he's really tripping over the American words in this speech. Like, you really hear it in this one. Yeah, and the plan is... It's hard. They're going to distract Bison with their, um, and I've got here, stealth boat? Question mark? They're going to sail upriver and then draw his attention to them and so the the actual uh, AN army can sneak in the front door and they're in a stealth boat to get that attention and then when they get that attention they panic because they've got that attention which was the plan that was the plan I was like okay if the whole point of this is to just be a misdirection then why even bother with the stealth in the first place like just go out there in broad daylight. I'll tell you why. Uh, because they were going to go there in helicopters, but they were shooting in, was it Thailand or something? Thailand. No. It was then moved to Australia after problems. But uh, Problems being there was a coup going on. There was a coup going on at the time. And they oh, were told, whoopsie. no, you can't drive a load of helicopters or fly a load of helicopters overhead. You might mm. incite revolution. Yeah. And Bison was oh. going to escape in a stealth boat. And they were like, if we repurpose this, we can have Guile drive the stealth boat. How are people going to know it's his stealth boat? We'll write his name on the side. But super (laughs) stealthiness. (sighs) Bearing in mind, at this point, he's legally dead. It's very confusing. I do like the technology the stealth boat used because... Because, like, on screen it just looks like it's invisible because it's stealth and because in the 90s people were stupid and didn't know what that meant. But... And most of us still are, let's, let's be real. But, um... Oh, it was when Burma the that they were filming down, originally. When, when the stealth goes down, you can see that it's that the technology where it's projecting what's behind it. So it just looks invisible. And I'm trying desperately to give this movie some credit, all right? Just let me have this one. No credit. Oh. They immediately see them. And then Bison plays an arcade yeah, of game. Of course they do. Where you mash your fingers on all six Street Fighter buttons and that launches a mine. A stealth boat does not work 
if the boat is on top of the water on the surface instead of below the surface. And very black and clearly visible. You friggin' idiot. Anyway. (laughs) Did they learn nothing from the ironclads of the Civil War? Apparently not. What are you going to use for your distraction? um, A cloaking device. Well, anyway, that's the plan. Let's not be Nelly naysayers, shall we? You were correct, Alex. The filming was taking place in Thailand. Thailand. Burma, Myanmar is next door, and that's where the political unrest mm. was going on. It right. The fact that they'd be flying quite close to the border yeah. with their helicopters. They didn't mm. want to panic anybody on the other side of the border into thinking that there was some kind of invasion or revolution yeah. going on. It's not an invasion. It's just a bad film just being made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, uh, but to, for no, for no real given reason, there's Esperanto everywhere in this movie. <sighs> Esperanto is the world's most widely spoken, constructed international auxiliary language. That's a rather crucial conjuncture. It's not the most widely spoken language. It's the most widely spoken language to be created to be widely spoken created by Polish ophthalmologist L.L. Zamenhof in 1887. It was intended to be a universal language for international communication, and the word Esperanto translates into English as one who hopes. So its chief enemies are practicality, stubbornness, laziness, scorn, and not doing anything unless everyone else does it. So nobody does it. At the time... Uh, Esperanto was being pushed as the language of the UN, the, the, I don't think it was like going to be the official language of the EU or anything like that, but it was being touted as, wouldn't it be great if we all had a common language that we would all use? Yeah. And nobody has an advantage because it's their home language, which is effectively what happens with English. It, it couldn't gain any traction because most countries... English is is used because the English at one point dominated everywhere. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to shout that. Um, And we won't learn anybody Mm. else's language. Like I said, stubbornness and laziness. Speaking of laziness, halfway through filming Street Fighter, they were told you should probably put some of the Street Fighter moves into your fight scenes. And that made them have to go back to the drawing boards because they hadn't actually planned on putting any Street Fighter moves in their Street Fighter movie. It was, oh, what, we gotta, we gotta do reference now? We've got it's a to- bit late for that. Which is why there's so many of them suddenly in the big bison fight at the end, around about that, yeah. in, the, in the Bisonopolis fight where all of them suddenly get into costumes because there's no good reason why anybody would dress like Balrog ever, so he has to finally end up dressed like Balrog by accident. I still don't know where he got boxing gloves from. Just in one scene, suddenly he had boxing gloves. I was like, oh, all right. So Chun-Li, who we haven't mentioned uh, so far really particularly, uh, frankly carries this movie for the good guy end. She's played by Ming-Na Wen, who you will have seen recently in the Book of Boba Fett and The Mandalorian. And she was also in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And she's pretty fucking fantastic. And she's honestly brings a lot more dignity and uh, intensity to this role than it probably like the, not that it required because it required everyone to be as on top form as she was. But she is kind of a star player in that she seems to give a shit about what's going on, and uh, she uh, was just on the uh, cusp of playing Mulan. Yeah, everyone is so gross to Chun Li though. It's yeah. Uh... It's, it's so terrible. I mean, especially especially Guile, but yeah. I mean, 
He despises her on sight because she's a journalist and journalists are all bad. Yeah, and then, but I love the fact that she does get a bit of Asian, like she kicks the ever-loving crap out of Bison. Like Mm. she's got him on the ropes and then all the guys screw it up for her because they distract her for a minute. Yeah, It's like she had him until the guys came in. This is uh, where she gets to have that best scene in the movie, where she tells uh, him about uh, her village was uh, destroyed by bison. It was 20 years ago. You hadn't promoted yourself to general yet. You were just a petty drug lord. You and your gang of murderers gathered your small ounce of courage to raid across the border for food, weapons, Slave labor. My father was the village magistrate. A simple man with a simple code, justice. He gathered the few people that he could to stand against you. (laughs) You and your bullies were driven back by farmers with pitchforks. My father saved his village at the cost of his own life. You had him shot as you ran away. A hero at a thousand paces. Now, as you've heard, I'm not this movie's number one fan. But Julia's delivery here is Sunset Boulevard levels of fucking ace. And I think a large amount of that comes down to Ming-Na Wen's conviction in giving him the dramatic lead-up. I'm sorry. I don't remember any of it. You don't remember? For you, the day Bison graced your village was the most important day of your life. But for me, it was Tuesday. And she's ice just, cold. It is ice cold, and, right. and, the, and the way they go back and forth on that is probably like the, it, no, 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 probably about it, is the richest dramatic core of it. And it makes me oh, think, yeah. maybe Chun Li should have been the lead this whole fucking way. And clearly someone else thought that, because they made Chun Li, like Street Fighter, The Legend of Chun Li next oh. with Kristen oh. Creek. Oh. And that, honestly, like. this movie's rubbish. That movie makes this movie seem like fucking Detective Pikachu. <laughs> this is uh, around about the time when the attack, the, the, the stealth boat's coming in, Bison yells out, prepare for attack mode! And, but, <laughs> Jean-Claude says over the radio, this is the collection agency. Your ass is six months overdue, and it's mine! This is about the point when I start feeling tired, because after the, for me, it was just Tuesday, it kind of winds up to being a not especially good end of a not especially good Bond movie. In fact, I rewound and the bit where Guile kicks his way out of that thing when everyone's expecting Blanca, I put Secret Agent Man on uh, from Austin Powers and it's cut exactly the same way as that comedy bit where Austin Powers shoots up Dr. Evil's underground lair. Only this isn't a comedy and by this point we're exhausted rather than exhilarated by all the humour. But every time the song goes Secret Agent Man it cuts back to Jean-Claude Van Damme because this is like the pacing of how many times we have to keep looking at Jean-Claude otherwise everyone will be asking where's Jean-Claude? There's a man who leads a life of danger 
everyone he meets, he stays a stranger. With every move he makes, another chance he takes. Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow. Guile's friend Charlie, who you may remember from Street Fighter Alpha as the guy with the awesome hair that goes out and then downwards into a long point. Uh, Charlie Nash. He was played by Chris Klein, actually, in um, uh, Street Fighter The Legend of Chun-Li. Uh, but yeah, he's been taken aside by Bison and turned into a giant green monster by Dr. Dalsim, played by the guy who was Chatalal in um, The Temple of Doom. Roshan Seth. I yeah. think it was all that Gunga Din stuff yeah. which D'Souza loves so much. They were looking, that's when they were looking for Harrison Ford. Get but, me that guy from Temple of Doom. But yeah, Dalsim <laughs> is clearly not a fan of, of everything he's doing. He's in chains repeatedly and, uh, you know, he keeps belaboring the point that what they're doing is not ethical and they're supposed to be feeding Blanca uh, lots of evil and horrible things that make him want to then kill which by the way is exactly what Alex was fed in the Clockwork Orange only he didn't like it he was like no I don't like it you're playing lovely Ludwig Van and um, uh, Dalsim then feeds him uh, I suppose um, videos of like cute puppies and kittens and like yeah. kids playing stuff you get from a 1990s telephone ad yeah yeah and so Blanca comes out of that one not savage but actually quite soft-hearted he's very much a Frankenstein creation and when Guile meets him he goes oh buddy and he's like help me and then Guile reaches down for his Beretta and he's about to cap Charlie because he's like this existence is not worth living and then Dalsim comes along and goes well, whoa 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 give it a second <laughs> I mean, look at this guy. Blanca looks fucking terrible. <laughs> but that is, that is kind of the so point. There bad. is a, there's a bit of a eugenics-y thing going on there in that they give, once he has time for his brain If he doesn't to look like the Nazi ubermensch that Jean-Claude Van Damme looks and acts like... Exactly, he's basing... You're a weird green freak and I'm going to kill you. He's basing it entirely off what... Charlie now looks like because he's literally just come out of his his tank. He's clearly still quite traumatized. Mm. You wouldn't expect him to be able to communicate particularly well. By the end of the movie, he's speaking in sentences and everything. Yeah, friend. <laughs> and luckily, the movie is on Dalsim's side. Guile was being a bit eugenicsy. This is also the point where Van... Uh, he doesn't kill Blanca in the end because Dalsim has the uh, moral high ground, which is nice, you know? Th this film is not harmful in what it's trying to say. It's not going to corrupt kids. If anything, it's going to kind of baby them and it might make them think that uh, some of the evil organisations with skulls on their hats have sweet-natured himbos in there who just don't understand what they're doing. It, it does kind of outline that evil is being cruel to people and good is being merciful to people. Yeah, and also that bad guys don't think they're bad guys. They think that they're doing good for the world. But if they're trying to manufacture their own currency, hmm. then they're probably bad guys. And this is the point where <laughs> Van Damme says, Come out from behind the curtain, wizard. Now that is not Jean-Claude Van Damme. That is clearly Christopher Lambert. <laughs> 
Come out from behind the curtain, wizard. And then... Uh, <laughs> then Raljulia shouts, You came here to fight a madman, and instead you found a god. You still refuse to accept my godhood. Keep your own god. In fact, this might be a good time to pray to him. And thank you, Stephen Sadak, for this awesome delivery. And Satan fell from heaven like lightning! Oh, He's God. gone to 11. It's wonderful. He's, He's gone to plaid, so okay? <laughs> Tyson has gone to plaid. Yeah. It's just about enough to wake me up from the slump that the act three of this movie uh, equates to. Uh, yeah. And uh, the actual the choreography of the fight is not a million miles off of Eddie Valiant versus Judge Doom in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which hopefully we'll be doing in the next few I was thinking about that. Oh, wow. I was thinking yeah. about that. This is like, man, he's flying around like Judge Doom yeah. in this scene. I would almost guarantee it's the same rig to get him flying around. You know, wh- when I turned Charlie Nash into a giant green man, I talked to well, that would make sense because in the cases of both Christopher Lloyd and Raul Julia, they're having to airlift a fairly old and in not particularly good shape. Yeah, better. be gentle with him, for God's Absolutely, sake. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You don't mm. want to damage either of these two. Events. And they kind of fudge a psycho crusher out of this technology that he's using, and he does like sort of electric gauntlets and things. And here's the thing. I always wind up at the end of this movie with on for, with for Raul via con Dios, which means go with God, because this was the last film performance from Mr. Julia. And as M. Bison, he is the best thing in this. As I said, the entire film rests on his broad, trembling shoulders. You've got nothing if, if this guy was played in, in boring fashion, like the way um, Neil McDonough plays M. Bison in Kristen Kroig's Street Fighter, The Legend of Chun-Li. Raoul was suffering from stomach cancer at the time, uh, and he had undergone surgery, losing so much weight that his costume had to be remade. There's a, I think the guy who played Ken said that when they met in a restaurant, he was suddenly, oh God, something's wrong. And he, he kept talking in this interview about how wasted Raoul looked. And if you watch this film in HD, you can really see the gaunt sort of like wrinkles on his face as he's just, he's lost so much. Uh, he ended up actually succumbing to food poisoning while filming his next film in Mexico after eating sushi. That film was The Burning Season, a 1994 American made-for-television biographical drama film directed by John Frankenheimer, a French connection. The film chronicles environmental activist Chico Mendez's fight to protect the Amazon rainforest. He was incredibly weak at this point, and yet, when he's up against Van Damme, a man at the peak of his physical prowess who could probably kick the ass of most people in the world, because Mm -hmm. he talks so big, he makes us believe just about that these two are evenly matched. Something wrong, Colonel. Come here prepared to fight a madman, and instead you found a god? He still refused to accept my godhood. Keep your own God. In fact, this might be a good time to pray to him. For I beheld Satan as he fell from heaven like lightning. (laughs) 
He saves this film from being utterly terrible, and frankly, I, I wish his last role had been Gomez Adams in Adams Family Values, or, more importantly, I wish that he was still with us today, because he is a fucking treasure. Yeah. And when we do talk about Adams Family, as we must, uh, he will be <laughs> spoken of with utter glowing fondness, because he is magnificent in those films. One of the, the loveliest things that I heard in the, the behind-the-scenes stuff was that... Raul Julia brought his family with him um, because presumably at this point he didn't want to be away from them at all. Mm. And people were commenting on not just how great it was to work with him because he was such a professional and because he was bringing so much to the role, but because when they were seeing him offset, he was just being this absolutely amazing dad and just demonstrating to everybody what a, a really great human being he was and inspiring them in that Aww. way. So for, for that reason alone, it gets points. doesn't get points for much else, but it gets points for that. Yeah, and I mean, I, he really does make this go from being just utter trash to at least watchable. Mm. The equivalent is uh, Double Dragon, that if you've ever seen, actually has a lot in common with this. If you told me it was the mm. same director for both, I'd go, I knew there was something. And yeah, that would definitely make sense. Well, yeah, it was Koga Shoku if, if that were the true. In, uh, in Double Dragon, played by Robert Patrick, who's great as the T-1000, but was sleeping through that role and has nothing much to do. And as, as such, his, his villain turn is totally unmemorable in a much less memorable movie. Um, but this film is much closer to Double Dragon than it is to Mortal Kombat, frankly. Mm-hmm. It also, like, Double Dragon wastes Mark Dacascus. Uh, like, he's, <laughs> he's a fantastic martial artist and an incredible physical screen presence who is, like, just watch Crying Free Man by uh, Christoph Gans instead. He's fucking gorgeous in that. And in Double Dragon, he's like, whoa, like doing Ted from Bill and Ted. It's just... It feels wrong. Um, I've, I've got two recommendations for folks who... like. If you really, really want to see this film, maybe do, but you're going to need to have some in reserve because when you finish, it'll be like, ah, that stunk. Okay, so hard target that I mentioned before for if you want mm-hmm. Van Damme at his peak. Uh, of, of those three, it's better than Universal Soldier, it's better than Time Cop. It's just a blast. We're going to be covering it at some point. In terms of... Goofy fucking farce movies that are hilarious to watch the whole way through. I'm going to pick one that actually reduced Sharon to tears. Like, you know when Sharon breaks on this show? That did this mm-hmm. to This did that to her. And it's Flash Gordon. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Honestly, Flash Gordon is the same level of uh, of like we're going to play this totally straight and yet it's ridiculous. And this one really does qualify as one of the best bad movies of all time. Pretty much everyone in it is as enthusiastic as Raul Julia in this. So it feels a lot less self-conscious, a lot less embarrassed, a lot less confused, a lot less contemptuous of the source material and a lot less lazy. We will definitely cover that as well. And the third one 
is just if you want a really serious but but really fascinating version of a film where people can fight really really well it's a lot more bloody and by the end you'll be like stop just put the curvy knives away and it reminded me of this because when Ken and Ryu get into a, a prison fight, I'm like, this is exactly like that bit in The Raid 2. I often talk about oh. how great The Raid mm. is, but The Raid 2 expands from being a, 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 a tight, diehard-style uh, survival in a, a tower block to this epic, sweeping uh, cops and criminals drama. And it's huge in scope, and just has absolutely phenomenal action in it. But you've got to have a strong stomach. There's a woman who does things with hammers, a guy who does things with a baseball bat, and the aforementioned curvy knife man that will haunt your dreams. Seriously, Jason Voorhees and the Cenobites wake up sweating, worried that Hammer Girl's going to get them. When you've seen films like that, it makes it really hard to go back to films like this and Surf Ninjas and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 and look at what they were peddling to children in the 90s <laughs> as martial arts and not oh, go, God. my God, this is unwatchable. Because bear in mind, like, um, uh, D'Souza says that the reason Street Fighter wasn't as popular as it was was because Jackie Chan had not yet done American films. If Rush Hour had come out before Street Fighter, then more people would have come to see Street Fighter. No, Rush Hour's really what? good and is and has the Jackie Chan stunt team doing this amazing action. And also Chris Tucker's really funny. And I hate Brett Ratner, but that film is great. And yeah. it's it's... D'Souza made every fucking excuse in the book for why the film wasn't better received, wasn't better reviewed, wasn't more popular. But when it comes down to it, mm. it was made without love. And that is a damn shame. So that's it for Street Fighter. Any more? Oh, I'm, I forgot T-Hawk's also there. Come out from behind the curtain, wizard. So no, that's exactly what he wants. <laughs> He's just, he's one of Kylie's friends, and like, uh, he doesn't get to say anything, but like when Van Damme says, get out that camera out of my face, at the beginning, he sort of goes, yeah. And that's it, that's T-Hawk, folks. Let's all thank T-Hawk for turning up. Yeah. He was okay, roughly so half of T-Hawk from the game. T-Hawk looks like T-Hawk ate this version of T-Hawk. <laughs> Although, yeah. again, they did actually cast somebody of native descent. Didn't give him anything to say. Didn't give him anything to say or do or participate yeah. in. But well Except done at least for having a cast from around the world. That's yeah. something. They did give him one line. It was explaining why he was wearing the native headband. Mm -hmm. What's that? What oh, was he saying? yes. Uh, I think he said that like his tribe wore them for luck uh, or something like that. It was like a, a Cherokee tradition or something like that. Yeah. And okay. that was that was his, his whole part of the movie. All right, then. Other than saying... Good. What a screw up! <laughs> he does say that at one point. Yes, yes. It was his his screw up. How I pertinent guess. to words? I don't words. know that. I don't understand that line at all. It's when Chun Li jumps out the window and he runs up and looks out the window and goes, "What, what a, a screw, screw up. up!" He's got two lines. Dulcim anyway. decides to stay with Blanca, and I think they probably walk off down the road um, uh, together. But the, but what happens first is that every single one of the Street Fighters, apart from M Bison and Sagat and DJ. Uh, gather in one place and watch Bison's temple explode and then go, yay! And everyone assumes their victory pose freeze frame. 
And I suppose it's the only way they could have ended this movie. It's also the most accurate to the game that it ever gets. It even finishes with uh, Ming-Na Wen going, oh, do I have to? Okay. <laughs> There's a four-minute sequence in the Jackie Chan film City Hunter where he gets thrown into an arcade game and then comes out as various Street Fighter characters and they use incredibly accurate moves and it's utterly stupid. But it's so entertaining in comparison to this movie. They also have the accurate music and, you know... Costumes. Costumes. It just... it. I don't think Street Fighter could actually have been done in the 90s in a way that actually works. I mean, it, mm. it would have been possible, maybe, but you'd kind of have to focus on drama for someone. Like, you know, ha- have a really good Ryu and a really good yeah. Chun-Li and have them talk. And they did try to do that with Chun-Li, but mm. it's just way too little too late. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The thing that bothers me the most about this film is you can tell it became a giant box ticking exercise. Yeah. Mm. And like so many of the early video game movies, they're like, all right, we need all these what? characters and we need them to look sort of close and we need to say their name. We have and to say some their of them. Na- we yeah, need exactly. them to do How a move from names? the game. <laughs> How many names can we say in the course of like five minutes right off the top? So everybody can go, OK, yeah, we got that one. We got uh, this guy. OK, just keep. They did that in Mortal Kombat Annihilation, though. That's the whole, what of noob cybot? Yes, and we mentioned that. We mentioned that, like, okay, the the quantity over quality thing, the box ticking, like, it's very similar to Annihilation in that Mm. way. Oh, yeah. But, like, okay, like you said, when they found out, oh, no, we need to have some, like, moves. So E. Honda does his 100 hand slap. Mm -hmm. He also does one of his victory moves, like... As he's starting the face off against um, uh, Zangief, he holds out his hand and cranes his neck around. And I went, oh, that's from the game. And yeah. then I went, oh, my God, I fell into the trap. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, Vega does a rolling stab, and there's a f- sort of kind of Hadouken. Oh, you mean the rolling crystal kind flash? Kind of Shoryuken, and a really dumb flash kick, and a not quite Psycho Crusher. But it was so funny, it didn't matter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one thing I haven't said is I was obsessed with Street Fighter when I was a kid. Like, I was really into Street Fighter. And I've persisted. I love Street Fighter. And we're going to do a, a show on it at some point, I'm sure. I, I didn't really want to talk about it that much, the game here, because I want to save that for then. So, like, this this meant a lot to me. I, you know, I was like, you know, let's hope that this one's going to be good. And then it, I saw it, and I went, I'm the fucking target audience. And I thought this was... I, I was so depressed that this was what we were being peddled. I was so tired of this kind of patronizing who cares it's for kids approach to movies so when the mcu came along and did it really really well as an adult i was like now this is great this is fan fucking tastic you're doing it right yeah this is how you would actually do it speaking of the mcu but remember the mcu ruined everything yes (laughs) okay can so the, at the very, very end, if you watch all the way through the pretty great uh, early 90s uh, hip-hop soundtrack. Uh, oh, yeah, Ice credits, Cube does a song, Street Fighter. Oh, it's great. Um, yeah. There is an after credit sequence that is 100% a sequel setup. That oh, yeah, it's a sting. never happened. Which I had never seen before I watched it this week. It because when wild. the movie's over and the credits roll, you go, thank Christ, and you turn it off. But when they released but it, I just cinemas, let it go this they did time. not include it. 
they removed the they did from uh, well yeah because it's it's m bison's hand coming up and clicking on a mouse to say next game world domination and it's kind of it's fudging the whole putting in an extra coin for an arcade game to keep going but it's Mm. You're bringing back a man you know to be dead. That's exactly why they didn't include it. It's tasteless. They shouldn't have put it... it that should have been in the deleted scenes. Yeah. You don't and put possibly, that at the end of the movie. And possibly because they were like, ah, oh, shit, we're never going to get a sequel. This is pointless. Just yeah. don't don't put it in. <laughs> oh, fuck it. I, I don't expect them to like... before the movie came out? Yeah. Yeah. They, that's why oh, Viacom Dios Pharrell... That's mm. horribly tasteless to put that in there. And obviously they didn't. But you don't then put it in the fucking uh, home video version, which they did. Mm-hmm. I don't expect them to like zoom up a mountain, go into a Tibetan cave, and it's the back of someone's gi, and it sort of flashes red. <laughs> and then this guy with red hair turns around and goes, Ryu, huh? Oh my God, Akuma! Flash, end credits. I would imagine when Street Fighter comes back around, and it will in the cinema... They'll do something mm-hmm. like that. We could speculate on how to make it good, but you've heard us say this stuff before. We did that for Mortal Kombat, and then when the 2021 version came out, they did none of it. But mm-hmm. I haven't written this down as a note, but it's there's something to be said for it. It's possible Street Fighter's time for being in a film or anything else like that has now passed, because m- almost all the characters are stereotypes. You know, like uh, E Honda comes out, throws salt around, looks like if you ask someone to draw a sumo wrestler, that's what they'd draw. And mm. they're all based on assumptions. Like, fucking, if you finish with Zangief, uh, you get to go to Red Square in Moscow and dance with fucking. No, actually, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev gets airlifted in with you and you do a Cossack dance with him. Comrade Zangief, you have made your country proud and shown that the Soviet Union can overcome all obstacles. Now it's time to celebrate in the appropriate Russian fashion. Mr. President, you dance very well. Well, you know, it keeps me in shape. Come on, everybody dance. It's so, like, when... I wish. I wish. I mean... When Rumble McSkirmish turns up in <laughs> Gravity Falls, so he bad. says, Now I must defeat the world's greatest fight fighters! Take me to the Soviet Union! That's gonna be tough. For a number of reasons. We're yeah. past that stage now. We're past the Soviet Union stage. Could somebody mm. please tell Putin that? Yeah. Zangief no longer represents what Russia could be. So this Um, actually is kind of a relic, as is the original Street Fighter 2. Just time enough to thank our bravest fight fighters who donate $15 in quarters to us every month. Thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Anthony Flores, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, 
Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. So that will about do it for Street Fighter. Before we go, where can folks find our guest's best recent stuff? Uh, Chewy first. I am on insert website slash the manipool. YouTube, <laughs> Twitch. There's also the podcast where we talk about mostly Magic the Gathering, unfortunately, but we're branching out into more things. Which and number is the episode that we were on where we talked about how to turn Magic the Gathering into a movie? Because that's very appropriate for what we're talking about here. 393. How did you do that? Oh, there it is. I was like, how did you do that faster than me? <laughs> I went yeah, to School of Movies was... Podcast Archive guest spots. <laughs> and it was so there. I've, I've saved everything October, we were October of 2015. Yeah. Good Lord, we're all old. It was as... That was the before time. That, that prompted me to write The Princess Thieves. So you folks need to listen to that. It's three and a half hours long. And we still had other stuff in the cutting room floor. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's good stuff, folks. 393 of the Mana Pool. And if you like Magic the Gathering, what you'd be listening to Chewy already. But uh, yeah, if you want to get into collectible card games in 2022, that's don't. the one to check out. No, don't. <laughs> I need to get away from Magic. For God's sake, don't. They've turned into an evil corporation. And Maya. So I will plug something that uh, I'm... I'm pretty proud of that came out recently and uh, it's one of Alex's audiobooks. It's called Stone Spring Maidens. The entirety of that audio drama is available on all podcasting platforms, I would imagine, through the New Century Multiverse. And I voiced mainly one character, but I had a couple of cameos that I thought were absolutely fantastic. If I do say so myself, I had a lot oh, of fun doing it. Oh, gracious! <laughs> <Royston>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. You'll find the gutters of this district overflowing with the treacherous element. There are always ringleaders, but then there's those who replace deposed kingpins. Those new kingpins are finding much can be achieved with ears and eyes in every shadow. One hopes their ambitions will not exceed their capacity to manage internal conflict. So anyways, Check out Stone Spring Maidens uh, through the New Century Multiverse podcast. And um, you can find me on Instagram at The Stunt Lady. And I'm also on Twitter at Maya Santandrea. If you want to talk movies, geeky stuff, video games, all kinds of whatnot, you can find me there. Yeah, you do everything. You got the stunt thing down and your voice is amazing. And your brain's pretty damn sharp too, so. I've got it all. <laughs> <laughs> And we will be back. You've got it all apart from sleep. Go sleep now. <laughs> yeah, that's a key component there. Yeah. Sleep. We will be back uh, okay. next week with a commissioned show on the Illumination animated movie Sing, plus its follow-up, Sing 2. And there's a definite act break if you don't want to hear anything about Sing 2 because you want to see it for yourself first. And we're going to end on the G.I. Joe cartoon of Street Fighter that came out around about the same time as this movie. And if what I harvested from this montage is to be believed, every single voice actor on the cartoon tried to dial their performances up to the same 11 as Raul Julia in this. Were they successful? You be the judge. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And game over! over. <laughs>
You two are so cute. I'm gonna die. Classic. <laughs> Bison! Waka! No! Not the head bite! Don't you understand? His blood can cure anyone who gets sick from this. Like Ryu. It can be the basis for a vaccine. I should be there for you when you take on the terrorists. Be gone, beast! We don't want your kind here! It's an incredible scene here in the Gaza. We are witnessing an attack by a... I'm not sure what it is, but seeing Arabs and Israelis unite to fight it may be a first, ladies and gentlemen. Hurry, Talsim. No, not if I were bound by your immutable laws of physics. Fortunately, I have advanced beyond such simple-minded perceptions and embraced the limitless enlightenment of metaphysics. Well done, Balrog. Oh, yeah, I'd like to hear you say that now. Oh, <laughs> oh this is delicious. Yes! Yes! Oh, Guile, that color is you. You are truly one of us now. Nicely done, love. Here, give us a big kiss. <laughs> Lots of women find me disturbing. You like some cornflakes? <laughs> I thought you were cool, Shagat. You wanted to help. We should be out getting rich tonight. Why don't I trust this to be good? You make me sick, Wang. Blanca, help me! Be careful. Watch out! Blanca, come back! If you know what's good for you and for your girlfriend, you'll do exactly what I tell you, Cody. brought some suntan lotion too and you have such nice strong hands we're trapped there's only one way out of here sonic Here comes the chef with the ginseng. 
I just keep bellin' with my 40 ounce of sake. I got my eye on his ass real steady. I'm ready. He pulls out the black machete with my luck. I think I'm stuck. It's a quarter to 12, so I pulls up my new truck. Start to work him with style and finesse. But the old man's blind, so he's not impressed. I swing. He hits me with the boom, bang, ping. Falling to the ground, I can hear my ears ring. He smiles. My neighbor dials 911. Boo, don't you know my guillotine weighs a ton of no match. I throw when I snatch. Decapitate his ass, nigga, catch. Many black folks want to try and snatch a double from the mask.
How about that interview? For my network. Sure. But only if you wear that dress. <laughs> 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 <laughs>